Alrighty, welcome to another episode of Constructed Resources. It was the eve before the Pro Tour, or I guess the, the Kaldheim Set Championship, and uh, BK and I are going to spend an hour dunking on my decks. Actually, well, we'll get into it, but uh, we've got a bunch of Strixhaven cards as well as a Constructed Resources preview card for Strixhaven. So, we got a, a fully packed show tonight, and uh, before we get to it, we've got our sponsor, ChannelFireball.com. You can go to ChannelFireball.com to buy cards from Strixhaven. There's a lot of, lot of sweet cards, uh, and if you... If you if you value cards by the amount of text on them, you get a really good deal for on Strixhaven cards because they've got a lot of text. So you get a lot of bang for your bucks text-wise. <laughs> if you buy anything from ChannelFireball.com, you can use the code CR. And uh, I'm excited to get to the show, so let's fire it off. Well, first of all, BK, I forgot to ask. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. All right so know. for the PT, I'm going to be... No, go ahead. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm all right. Um, my Sixers didn't make any blockbuster trades today at the NBA trade deadline. So I, I, you know, it's, it's all right. We got some cool cards to talk about. So I'll just have to be content with not getting Kyle Lowry and I'll be content with some talking about some new strict saving cards. And yeah, I, I got questions for you about these decks, Luis. Um, definite, definite questions, <laughs> but yeah, I'm excited to, to watch you compete this weekend. Uh, I will not be competing myself personally, but I'll be rooting for you. My hardest, I'll be using concentrated rooting powers on you and Matt Ness. Yeah, we're both going to need it, given that I also know what Matt Nass is playing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Uh, so let's get to it. First, standard. It's not – I don't think standard is actually that outrageous. We're just playing Teamer. We're playing uh, Teamer Adventures with, you know, Goldspan Dragon, All Runes Epiphany, the Adventure Package, uh, some great henges. And uh, I, I mostly like the deck. Uh, the The one miscast in the main deck and one in the sideboard have proven to be pretty good. I think that those cards are good. And I also think there's a pretty good amount of value in doing things like playing one miscast, one mystical dispute in a field of open deck lists where you're playing in skilled players who will kind of go out of their way to play around these cards. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. So for those of you who haven't seen miscast, it's just a single blue mana for an instant counter target instant or sorcery spell unless it's controller pays three. And obviously in a format with a lot of bone crusher giants, it's pretty nice. And it, like you mentioned in this open deckless field, the fact that you guys have a single copy of Miscast means that like those free roll bone crusher giant stomps that your opponent might want to pull off on turn two. Well, they might want to give it a second thought if you have a single blue mana up. Also, we'll see. We'll see how I end up playing the tournament. But if, I, I think if I win my first couple rounds, I'll start going full control to always be representing it when I have blue mana. But not if I start like one and two, then I'm, then I'm probably not going to do it. Yeah, <laughs> you're not wrong. I mean. It's it's an unfortunate aspect, um, and it was something that I had to get used to playing on Arena last last year when I was playing a lot of Team of Reclamation decks. And it's like a pretty real thing that just you just kind of have to like always bluff the mystical disputes at, at the if you want to play at the absolute highest level. If you're you're not going to get much of an edge or learn very much or become much better of a player by just doing it on the ladder. If you want to do it and you have the energy for it, just fine. Just do it, I guess. Your opponent's going to hate you but <laughs> because you're going to bog the game down. But it's not going to like make you much better of a player. But when you get to the PT, like I definitely am aware when my opponent has a mystical dispute response window, and I'm sure you are too. Yeah, and, and so I, you know, just, just to be clear, especially for those who don't play Arena, if I didn't have full control and just played the game as normal and had a single blue mana up and they played an instant or sorcery or a blue spell and it auto passed there, they can tell I don't get priority. They know I don't have mystical dispute or miscast, whichever is applicable in that situation. 
In order to combat that, the technical correct play, if you want to, again, go for max edge, is to always have full control on so you always get priority so they can't get any information. There's no information leaked. The downside is, well, it's kind of agonizing. And that's why I actually am not really joking when I said, if I'm doing well in the tournament, I'm more inclined to want to do those things. If I'm not, I'm probably not going to stress about it, you know, because it's just going to depend on what my state of mind is at at a given time and energy level. Obviously, if you detract from your own play by doing stuff like that, you shouldn't do it. But when you play against someone good and they can figure out you don't have uh, like a mystical dispute in hand, they'll just cast Alrun's Epiphany into your one mana, as opposed to maybe not doing that if you're if you're always getting priority. Yeah, but turning it back to the actual deck itself, the sort of the Teamer Adventures deck has been obviously a mainstay of Standard now for. Well, really going back all the way since the printing of Edgewall Innkeeper and Lucky Clover, just the the triumvirate of Brazen Borrower, Lovestruck Beast, Bone Crusher Giant with Edgewall Innkeeper, just such a strong mid-range package. And then we've seen various other pieces flow in and out of these decks as they were legal or as they were printed. When I was testing this deck a lot last season, I was playing with uh, with an ultimatum, the teamer ultimatum. And I was not playing with Goldspan Dragon, obviously, because it wasn't printed and I couldn't play with Alrin's Epiphany. So why don't we, for maybe people who played a lot of this deck last season or some familiar with there, let's talk about what it is that Goldspan Dragon adds to this deck. What new component does it bring? Because I used to be playing with the, what was the other the dragon that you Terror of the play? Peaks. Yeah, Terror of uh, the Peaks. So the, the Goldspan, Dag- Goldspan Dragon does a couple things. Uh, one is it's like a big hasty threat. So, it, you know, it can actually clock your opponent, right? A 4-4 flying haste is, is not bad at doing that. But the, the two main kind of synergies it has is with two copies of Sock coming, a Mystical Dispute and a Miscast, you can play it, attack, and still have a counterspell up for their big play. This comes up the most against something like Soltai Ultimatum, where at some point you foretell a Sock coming, or you just have one of the single blue counters in hand, and you and you have a window to go dragon hit you on their turn if they try to tap out for an ultimatum you just counter it and then you usually can win the game on your following turn you know based on how much damage you have the other thing it does is it stacks really nicely with Arun's epiphany which lets you take an extra turn because it costs a lot of mana to cast Arun's epiphany dragon provides that mana like imagine you know the curve of turn five dragon turn six attack time walk then you get another attack and you have tons of mana you hit you've already hit them for 10 even if you had nothing in play right four plus uh, another four plus the two birds and it, it, it can be really powerful to go from there it also helps you cast something big like uh, the great hand which we've got two copies of yep uh the great hand was and kazandu mammoth were two cards that i wasn't as big of a fan of in last season's deck um i and part of that was because i think that deck needed to win a little bit more with ramping but Kazanu Mammoth and Goldspan Dragon uh, give you a lot more beatdown capabilities for sure. Uh, the Great Henge, sort of what matchups does that card shine the most in, in standard right now? Uh, so it, it's good against the aggro matchups, uh, where especially the ones where you might buy yourself a turn by playing a Lovestruck Beast or you play a Kazandu Mammoth. And if they don't have like a Frostbite right away, you can really punish them with Great Henge. And the Mammoth actually makes Great Henge castable even through like a Redain out of White Weenie if you've got like a Fabled Passage. Like you can usually get it to the point where you can cast it on turn four. Um, also, the Great Henge stacks really well with uh, Arun's Epiphany. 
Like it, it, it sounds like overkill, but sometimes people do really big things in standard and getting to take extra turns when you have the great hand jet can really do you just like, you know, kind of going over the top. It's at its weakest uh, against decks with counter spells or decks with tons of removal. Like, don't really lean on it against something like Soltai, for example, because they can they can also beat it by going over the top of it with their ultimatum, and they often don't let you untap with the creature in play. So it's mostly for like the aggro or mid-range matchups, less so for like something like Soltai or the Mirror. Yeah, and even even if it does come into play, this deck isn't this deck isn't particularly strong at playing the Great Henge and getting a ton of value off of it the same turn. I mean, sometimes you would see that out of like rule adventures where they just had so many cheap creatures that they could get, you know, multiple cards off of it in the mid to late game. Um, and then obviously Sultai with Binding of the Old Gods has a nice main deckable answer to it. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing kind of uh, going on here is that the adventure package itself is really, really strong and getting to play Brazen Borrower especially, that, that card is really good with a lot of what the deck's trying to do. Because when you're playing against like Sultai or the Mirror and you want to leave counter mana up to stop a Goldspan Dragon or an Emergent Ultimatum, Brazen Borrower is kind of the perfect card because it lets you kind of advance your board and put another threat into play without tapping mana on, on your own turn. And I mean, there's a reason that package of four Innkeeper, four Brazen Borrower, four Lovestruck Beast, four Bonecrusher Giant has been... If not tier one every single time or every single month since the set, the, the, all those cards came out and then all the like really egregious cards got banned, it's been fl- very close to it just about the whole time. Yep, no doubt. Um, some of the best creatures that we've ever seen in standard and they just work really well together. I mean, these are these are basically just the best creatures in standard, um, basically bar none. So the fact that these a deck like this is getting to play all of them. I mean, we see we see these cards showing up in archetypes that just have nothing to do with adventures, right? Like red decks play Bone Crusher Giant, green beatdown decks play Lovestruck Beast, and just blue interactive and tempo decks play Brazen Borrowers. So then we're upping how good those creatures are to just another level here. But obviously, if you've listened to Constructive Resources, you're no stranger to how big of a fan we are of the adventure package, and in particular in Standard. Uh, so let's delve potentially into... Actually, before we get into the sideboard... Um, Let's talk about what you expected the meta to be and what it looks like it's going to be and how that led you to this teamer deck. Uh, we thought the top three decks were going to be Sultai Ultimatum, Teamer Adventures, and Mono Red, um, with Sultai likely being the most played deck. Uh, and the metagame shook out very close to that. The, it's It's not the sort of spot, though, where you're like, well, I predicted meta. It was really hard to do it, and I can really take advantage of it. I think most teams or people playing in the tournament would probably have picked those as the top three decks. That was just pretty clear based on what people were playing, you know, and as for getting an edge, well, I think Teamer's good against Mono Red, and I think it's very close, but slightly ahead against Sultai, and of course the mirror's the mirror. So that's why that's why we thought it was the best choice. I, I know from <laughs> playing Mono Red, you don't want to play against the Lovestruck Beast Bone Crusher package very much, and having counterspells against Sultai... Ends up working out pretty nicely. One thing to note is uh, this deck is playing Obosh as its companion. So we are playing odd, uh, only odd odd cards. The place that really hurts you is actually the Rogues matchup, funnily enough. We even considered playing three or four Scorching Dragonfires on the sideboard and giving up Obosh. At the end of the day, we couldn't pull the trigger on that because we didn't want to dedicate necessarily all four of those slots to a matchup we didn't expect to see tons of. And... Once you do fewer than like three or four, you're really spewing companion value at that point. And the companion does matter. Like that's the, that's the thing. 
I, I think we've all learned at this point that a sideboard slot for a companion is not really a cost. So you really have to look, how close is my deck to fulfilling a companion requirement? And if it's close, it's like, yeah, you just should just cut the one card that does not disallows Gigantha. You can play Obosh without really making much of a sacrifice. Like our non-Obosh teamer decks had like a couple of the two drop removal, whether it's Fire Prophecy or Scorching Dragonfire and some Shark Typhoons. And at the end of the day, it's like, or maybe some Disdainful Strokes as well. It's like, you can just find good versions or uh, passable versions of those cards and it's worth the slight downgrades in order to play obosh because this deck adds a lot of mana sometimes you play obosh and attack them for a lot of damage it it sometimes you run out of cards and you just have 10 mana in play and it's all of a sudden wow i get to play this like effectively six five creature that just came kind of came out of nowhere so i i, I do think that uh obosh adds a lot to the deck but Rogues is not a matchup uh, we really want to see. We do we do have a Demon Bolton sideboard uh, as one of our removal spells. That's a nice one. <laughs> uh, look, here's the thing: when you first pick a Demon Bolt, you don't want it to end up, you know, not not in your deck. So we we we, we had really had a tr- trouble leaving that one out. Um, and uh, we also have three copies of Ox of Agonis. So I think that the Rogues matchup isn't like you know completely terrible, but you, I would prefer not to play against Rogues with this deck. Yeah, that was so. Last season, when I was testing the Teamer Ultimatum deck uh, for the Zendikar Set Championship, and I ended up on Rogues. A big part of it was I just didn't like the Rogues matchup enough, and I actually did just come to the conclusion that against that Rogues was that the right way to build it for that tournament. Um, slightly different deck, but pretty close was to just cut Obash and play the Scorching Dragonfires. It, they were that good in the matchup, and the other answers just weren't as weren't good enough, but. Like Rogues is definitely not going to be as popular this weekend. We already know as it was uh, that time around, so that makes sense. Um, as far as the, I like I like some of these one ofs. Uh, can we talk about um, the one copy of Soul Seer? That's that's a cute one. Yeah, that's the the, the two and a red deal five uh, in lose indestructible. It's mostly for Lovestruck Beast, you know, Gruel type decks or or even the Mirror, but also uh, against like Toski. If you, if you play against like the, the, the <laughs> those kind of decks, you, you can you can end up end up uh, figuring out ways to to deal with it because it, it it does it does strip uh, indestructible from the creature. So so you can actually blow up the squirrel. Not that I expected much of the Clarion uh, Spirit deck. Uh, I, I think that that was not not going to be super played. Yeah, the other the other spot that you see indestructible show up in the format is the the sometimes the cycling decks will have copies of fight as one after board and that will also strip the indestructible from that too. So, all right, so cool stuff. I mean, overall, this deck is not too adventurous. Uh, you know, I no, mean, it's, it's extremely adventurous. That's that's the deck. Yeah. <laughs> all right, I got you. Um, yeah. Pretty normal stuff, though. Um, you're playing just a really solid mid-range deck, and you've got a strong over-the-top finish. And like you mentioned, you added a little bit of spice in the form of some more extra specialized counter spells, both to your main deck and sideboard. That do look like they can give you a nice little advantage in the mirror just because um, just countering an early adventure creature and countering one of the big plays out of something like Ultimatum does sound awesome. All right, let's move on to, to Historic. <laughs> where. <laughs> Let me explain what's going on here. Uh, so, well, can I give my background on that before you do that? Oh, yeah. So, last week when I was talking to you about you know how preparation was going for this event, you were just bragging about how great Thick Jund was <laughs> with just playing lots of Corvalds and how amazing it was. And now that I'm looking at your deck list, I don't. Where are they? So here, here's what happened in Historic. I can actually walk you through it. We 
We we very early in testing identified that four core vault food uh, with John with like actually fewer trail of crumbs than, than most people play and four core volts just like mandatory only because we couldn't play five. Well, it was a very good deck. And this was at the point where Jund Company was the most popular Jund version. And then there were there were it was more people talking about other decks than Jund food. So Sunday morning of the day decks were due. We're, we're, we're talking about it, but we get to the point where the you know there was like a five a Star City five k open and Jund food was the most played deck followed by Jund sacrifice and it was just like ugh, we, we basically if deck submission was a week beforehand I think we would have been in a better position relative to the field I'm not saying that we're brilliant for getting to Jund food being good a lot of people did but we were on it pretty quickly and and had and we're like you know tuning the deck and like we had kind of started to really drill down what we wanted and then the then the mising occurred the great misening so. Basically, what happened is we looked and thought, what are the playable decks in the format? Okay, well, Jund, is cer- Jund Food is certainly the best deck. Also, what decks is Jund Food good against? And especially since I would say the average Jund Food deck had four trails, or like the median Jund Food deck had four trail of crumbs. I think the Jund Food deck is very good against control decks. Like, they just have a huge problem with trail, and then Corvold's great, and just overall, the deck is very strong, right? I mean, there's a reason I would, this deck's great. I would much rather have Trail of Crumbs be playing that than Collected Company for just for that matchup. Yeah. And uh, so we're like, okay, so Jun Food is going to be the most popular, and we'd guessed probably in the, like, 35, maybe 40% range, though some members of our team, like Kai, was like, it's not going to be really much over 30, because people just don't want to play it, you know? Which I think if everyone was trying to optimize, including ourselves... You should just play Jund and like I, I think like half the field should be Jund based on what I believe the strength of the deck is, though we'll see what people have brought to kind of take advantage of that. <coughs> um and then the fact that it was good against the control decks led led us to to play a deck that uh you know Gabriel Nassif brewed up during our team meeting on Sunday morning when the decks were due Sunday night. <laughs> we a furious day of playtesting ensued, and we ended up on anti-Jund Obzon. <laughs> so <laughs> Which is a which is a classic because you know if you play the modern format that was always the go to is like oh Jun's really popular this weekend well I'm not going to bring Bloodbraid Elf I'm going to bring Lingering Souls instead because that's really good against Liliana the Veil yeah I mean that, that there is some precedent for this uh, so th- this deck you know it, it, it's a Yorian deck eighty cards the best card in the deck is Wall of Blossoms for those of you who haven't been playing for millions of years it's one and a green for an O four and when it enters the battlefield Wait, draw a card what. Are you joking about that? Why? I I don't know. It, it, Wall of Blossoms is the best card in the deck. I mean, Wall of Blossoms is awesome. It just does it all. <laughs> it, it it stops okay. early attackers. It puts a creature into play to protect from priest, and it draws you like five cards over the course of the game. <laughs> Thanks to all the Yuriorians. <laughs> I'm not. I can't. I just don't. I don't have a read. It's. I mean, like Wall of Blossoms is is fine. I guess I just assumed that people were doing like. Really, let me put it this way. When I played historic tournaments, I've gotten like Muxist out of the tournaments. I've had people put 500 million Mayhem Devil triggers onto the stack. It ha- I, I just haven't seen it be a format where a card like Wall of Blossoms is the best thing going on. Oh, just wait till this weekend. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> four Wall of Blossoms, four, four Yasharns, you know, the, the, the pig, uh, four Night of Autumn, blows up Trail, blows up blows up uh which is which is of in uh games life against aggro is a four three beater against other decks uh you know also can blow up random enchantments and artifacts from other sources uh for extinction event 
four Thoughtseize. Got to play Thoughtseize. Four Maze Mind Tome. Four Baffling End. So Baffling End's actually a pretty sick one with Yorian. This is the enchantment for one and a white that exiles a creature for that costs three or less. But when Baffling End leaves, they don't get the creature back. They get a 3-3 three, three Beast token, which... Dinosaur. Or Dinosaur. Uh, with Trample, by the way. Uh, which... Matters for a few a few reasons. One is that they can't get their cauldron familiar back if you snag it, you know, no matter what they have, you know, or whatever card that they care about. The second is, Strider, is is when you blink it with Yorian, it's always break even because you can always just exile the the beast if you want when the baffling end comes back. But Wall Blossoms also stops the beast pretty nicely, or you set up with like a you know like a wrath or something of some kind. So. Uh, Baffling is also just a good efficient two-drop removal spell at, at Exiles, so it's good against like Aurits, for example. You know, it doesn't it l- doesn't let them lure us or claim to fame their creature back. Um, or selfless savior to protect it. Right. Though though people are on Kaya's Ghost Form now, and that that card is very good. It's actually one of the better cards against this deck. Uh, that's the enchantment for a black that if the creature dies or becomes exiled, it just comes back into play. So. That that card actually, really? yeah, it, the card's messed up. It's actually like really strong, so uh, that 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 card is quite annoying. But luckily, we've got uh, two copies of Kaya, the the Planeswalker that can exile one cost creatures like Cataroven. Uh, two Oath of Kaya's, which is a pretty good one with Yorian, and then uh, you know three copies of Yorian, uh, four Binding the Old Gods, a classic combo with Yorian, and then uh, you you know you, uh, Yorian is your companion, and a couple of copies of Mithros of Nethroi, the unconditional removal spell. So. Basically, what this deck is trying to do is priority one is beat Jund, and it does. I I do believe that this deck is very good against Jund. Uh, played a, played a good amount of matches with it, and its record against Jund is very very good. It's got four copies of Yasharn. It's got a bunch of exile effects. It's got a bunch of wraths. It's got a bunch of you know every card that you really want against Jund. It, it can dismantle all of its engines. It's got Elspeth Conquers Death to kill Corvold and, and Mayhem Devil and all that stuff. It's uh, I really like I really like the incidental life gain you guys have for yeah, that matchup too. Yeah, two copies of both of Kaya, uh, four Knight of Autumns is you know can and, and also Kaya herself can also gain just gain a lot of extra life. Um, and the four Maze Mind Tomes, right? Yeah, Maze Mind Tome does the, does the trick as well. Uh, awesome. It it I would say you could say that it struggles against control decks, but that is underselling it. Uh, <laughs> 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 the, the, this deck is just not going to beat a control deck, like. If you get really, really lucky, maybe you will. But like blue white control, like we we tried a bunch of uh, like sideboard plans, like thought distortions and stuff. And at the end of the day, we have some like shifting ceratops, which you know they're 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 fine against the deck. But you really don't want to get paired against blue white control. Sultai ultimatum, I assume, is even worse. We don't even bother testing there because there's just no way this deck's going to beat a Sultai ultimatum deck. I just really can't conceive of a world this deck's trying to go really long and they have a much more powerful endgame. That's the kind of thing you're really bad at looking at this deck list. You you look it looks like you're horrendous at closing the game out. Yes, the 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 sideboard has multiple copies of Ugin, which in retrospect I kind of wish I played like one of those in the main deck uh, just to just to help with that. Though Amaria's call is also pretty good at closing things out if you have to. Um, and the, the 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 reason I think this there's a couple reasons we played this deck. One is that. If you look at the decks that were winning last week in Historic, and of course you don't want to always be looking at last week, you want to look at next week, but if you look at the decks that were winning last week, this is good against basically all the decks with good win percentages. Um, and we predicted there'd be a lot of Jund, and the Jund decks would kind of step on the control decks because I, I really can't imagine playing control in a field full of Jund. I just don't think that would be a good idea. Like I'm not saying it's foolish to do it. I just think a lot of people would shy away from it. Uh, 
the Jun percentage wasn't as high as we were hoping, 31%, but it would have been, you know, I think it would have, any, anything between 30 and 40% makes this deck a potentially viable choice. What I think is going to happen, most likely, eight of us are playing this, is one or two people are going to play against a lot of Jund and a bunch of like mono red and gruel, and they're going to be like, wow, our deck's great. And then a couple of us are going to play against like three blue white control decks and be like, why, why did I play this deck? <laughs> so, you know, we'll, we'll see where things shake out. But the other thing has to do with actually the prize structure and incentives of the tournament. We're, you know, everyone on our team is in MPL arrivals, which means up for grabs is not qualifications. We're already qualified for the tournament this can qualify for. What's up for grabs are our points in our respective leagues, which really only pay off if you top eight. There, you, you can Isn't get, that true for everyone? Well, you can you can qualify if you... I don't know what record you need to win another qualification. Oh, but you my can, recollection last time around was that you basically had to, like... Top eight or just shy to like basically. Well, get in that case, this it. this would apply to everyone. I don't know how yeah. it works, but but yeah, the, yeah. the point is, I would never in a million years play this in a league weekend. If this tournament this weekend was was a league weekend instead, where every match win is a point, and you're just trying to go for points over the season, I think this would actually be a really bad choice because this deck is more likely to cluster on the higher low end, where if you play against a lot of Jun decks, you're going to do really well, and if you play against very few Jun decks, you're going to do quite poorly. When the rewards for spiking are high, but the rewards for median finishes are low, I think you're better off trying to take a shot. And I don't believe in anything you just said. I want to be on the record before we get hit with the math people. Well, what I'm saying is like, what if this this tournament was like 42% jund or something? It's not. It's not because I think this. this yeah. It's not because I think this deck for the field we're seeing right now is only going to do really well or really poorly. It's we were trying to aim at the at the tournament that was like half jund or forty percent jund. Yeah, I mean, I think you. It's. I think you make a probabilistic bet on, and then things could go your way or not go your way. Um, uh, but I don't to, think to, the math. To, yeah. to be clear, I'm not saying this deck's going to 3 or 3 I'm saying this deck's yeah. either going to be – this deck's more likely to be very well positioned or very poorly positioned for the tournament. Oh, sure. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, you know, you should try to draft a 3-0 deck, but if you fail, you'll get an 0-3 deck because that, that's not how it works. Like decks just have a win percentage, right? A, a, a 60% win percentage deck is, is better than a 55% win percentage deck even if one of the decks is higher variance. I'm saying we played this deck hoping to, to to snipe a tournament that was lots of Jund. It ends up being a good amount of Jund, not enough Jund to make this bet very good. I don't think like I don't think this deck is is, is optimally positioned for this field. So I'm not I, I'm not saying given this field, I think this deck's gonna do well or poorly. I'm saying yeah. we picked a deck that had the capability of being the best deck in the tournament. It is not the best deck in the tournament. <laughs> but imagine gotcha. imagine a field where 45% of the people are playing Jund. You would probably want to play a deck that just beats Jund and doesn't care about much else, right? Like, Because it's not like this deck's 0% against non-Jund decks. It's also good against aggro decks. It's just not good against control decks, and control decks are bad against Jund. So yeah. it's not a completely brainless bet, but I also think that at the end of the day, not everyone wants to play the play the the best deck i mean we we sure sure didn't so <laughs> assuming that everyone is going to play the best deck is is a bit uh is a bit of a a bit of a gamble we'll say but but yes i, I well, know the fallacy you're talking about that's not what we were thinking we were we were thinking hey there's worlds where this is the best place to be and we wouldn't usually take such a risky line cuz the the non risky line is just to play jund you know uh, roughly how good Jund is going to be. Everyone knows how, how, roughly how good it's going to be. 
this is a deck that I think could be much better or much worse than Jund for the field. We were just hoping for a field where it was much better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, 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 the polarizing matchups, the, it is not. Yes. I don't think it is. It's, it's tricky. I don't think it's true that you should it's supposed to play a deck that has polarizing matchups when you want to spike because you could just spike by just in in more subtle ways if you're but it, uh, when you play like a normal like a normal 55% deck that has a lot of just evenish matchups by just getting kind of lucky in a bunch of times rather than just getting trying to get very lucky with your pairings but yeah th- this was more thinking we could we could potentially have like a 60% deck but yeah. we could also have a 40% deck. Where we landed? I don't know. We'll have to see how it goes, you know? Like, I'm glad we played for Legion Den because there's a lot of black-white auras, for example. Like, that card is pretty good against them. Um, it'll, it'll, it'll depend on how their deck's constructed. That matchup's actually not as good as you might think by looking at, like, oh, this is all removal deck. Well, their deck's actually really good against all removal decks. So, uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, if you've, if you've played against the auras deck, <coughs> their ability to rebuild their protection with Luris in particular... Where it's like, okay, they use their selfless savior once, they use their uh their all seed once, and now the 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 Luris means they're gonna just keep coming back, coming back, coming back, and protecting again and again and again, and it's just it becomes a nightmare. Well, well they've even moved off both those cards. It's not even those cards. Really? They're just all Kaya's ghost forms and some in some cases demonic uh rising or whatever. It's like a black for a plus one plus one enchantment that when it dies, it goes back to your hand. Like it it it's all just those rinky dink enchantments that protect their creatures, and then of course Luris is still awesome, plus claim to fame without even the ability to cast fame, just straight up bad on earth to get their thing back. So it would actually be easier if it was those creatures because we have a bunch of exile effects, but Kai's ghost from really dunks on that. So I guess that makes sense. I mean, extinction event was particularly strong in the past against that, against the all, like the all seed selfless yeah. savior type action. So it makes sense. I mean, I, I didn't test for this tournament. I guess it shows that I'm, I'm a little behind the curve on yeah, how for the sure. deck has evolved. I certainly don't play historic when another tournament's coming up either, though. I guess the addition of Brainstorm, we'll, we'll, we'll see what that does. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in just a sec. End of the day, if I had to grade my decks, I think the Teamer deck is just a solid B. And I think for the field that we're at, I think the Obzon deck's like a C plus. Like, I, I definitely could do well with it. I don't think that, like, I'm dead, you know, in the tournament or anything. But this deck needed Jun to be closer to 40% for me to really feel excited. If this deck, if Jun was 40%, I would say that the deck, the, the Obzon deck was like a B plus. You know, I, I think that it would be a pretty good choice. Also, there was some amount of like Jund fatigue, at least for me personally. I've just played Jund in a bunch of these. I just kind of didn't want to play it at the end of the day. And so I, I'm not saying that was necessarily the best choice, but this tournament isn't like the most important tournament in the world for me, whereas the League Weekends I care about much more because those have a bigger hand in determining kind of the future of my my organized play next year. These tournaments, like, yeah, if you spike them in the top eight, they could definitely help you, but they're not... <sighs> They're not the hugest stakes uh, for for folks who already have their next invites lined up. Of course, for people who are trying to top 16 or top eight to get another invite, you know, completely changes the equation. All right. So we'll be rooting for you on in both of those formats. Uh, So it's going to be two days, Friday and Saturday. Well, yeah, standard (laughs) and historic. Uh, You are not streaming your side of it. You'll have to, hopefully, you'll get some feature matches that we can watch. They will want to show off this deck, but we'll see uh, how how, how long that lasts. Anything to, you know, to not show gender auras, I'm sure. That's, I I know how coverage works. And when your top two decks are 30% and 15%, like you you, you just look for everything else because you know those decks will be around at the end of the tournament. 
Yep, makes sense. I mean, there's there's some uh, there's some wild decks in the that they can feature in historic. There's uh, some people who brought elf decks. You know, there's some elvish arch druid is now in the historic format. Niv-Mizzet. Some people who brought Niv Mizzets. Yes, that that's I. We know some people on that. Some people are playing angels. So you know, some stuff. Definitely some stuff going on. Um, but that'll be starting up Friday and. Probably by the time you were listening to this episode, uh, we had to delay when this episode came out a little bit to tell you about our Strixhaven preview card. Um, the Tournament of Fire have already begun, so you can go check it out on Twitch. All right, so moving on, Strixhaven School of Mages is the next major standard set release for Magic. It is preview season has begun for it, and the set is just now just weeks away. Uh, today, they unveiled most of the major mechanics for the set. And they unveiled um, some of the new double-faced cards, and it's so. Let's let's start getting into it. <laughs> well, let, 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 let's give the people what they want. Let's give them the, give them our preview card first. All right, all right. So our preview card is not appearing in a booster Strixhaven booster pack proper. It is uh, a mystical archive card, which is, means it's like basically a promo, and it will be legal in historic. And so today we are proud to announce that the card compulsive research. Coming to Arena, coming to the historic format. Um, as this is a podcast, uh, we can't show you the nice, pretty new art it has, but Luis is going to has prepared a nice, extensive description of it to really paint a picture. Go ahead, Luis. <laughs> uh, I will not describe it in the terms that, that we described it pre. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, let's tell people what Compulsive Research does because Luis, I, I've cast this card a bunch of times in cube, but you've actually you've actually played this card back when it was in standard. I played it in my first big tournament finish, Solar Flare. Uh, yeah, it's two and a blue. It's a sorcery. Target player draws three cards. Then that player discards two cards unless they discard a land. So this is the, uh, I guess, the follow-up to Thirst for Knowledge. It was after uh, it was after Thirst for Knowledge. But sorcery speed, but you could discard a land, which is obviously much more powerful than discarding an artifact. In the, Yes, there are some decks that specifically want artifacts in the graveyard, but every deck plays lands and lots of them. So more often, this is a draw three, discard one. I mean, if this wasn't standard, it would probably, you know, be be, be interesting to, to play in some decks. Like Thirst for Meaning saw a little play, and that card's a lot harder to use. It is. The big thing going on with this one, it'll be interesting to see if Compulsive Research can find its niche is that it, for blue decks, it is a sorcery speed form of card draw. And it's the, as you know, as I think the world has gotten a little bit more powerful, the bar has gone up for sorcery speed card draw just because having a key counterspell answer to an important card out of the opponent has felt even more important over time. Um, what Compulsive Research does that's pretty dope is it can be both a card filtering card for you know your normal control deck but it works particularly well in combo control decks and in particular reanimator decks where it is a way where if your opponent is you know interacting with you in terms of trying to disrupt your ability to reanimate creatures well you could just use compulsive research as a good solid card draw card but it's also a nice little discard outlet so it does fill a nice dual role in those and so I'd be that's the first place I'd sort of look. And I think the first place that really takes advantage of what makes compulsive research a special card is, is there does this present the opportunity for a new kind of reanimation deck in historic? Yeah. And, and certainly it's maybe not the most powerful uh, <laughs> mystical archive card to, to, to enter the historic, but it's certainly not not the weakest card. I mean, this this card does. You know, it has done things in the past, and I could see I could see it getting a little traction in historic. But uh, moving on from compulsive research, and of course, thanks to Wizards for for the preview card. Uh, What's the weakest one? Whirlwind denial. 
No, I'm just going to keep you move on. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, if you have to ask, the weakest one is probably from just looking initially. Urza's Rage is just not a card that is kept up oh, at yeah. the times. Ur- Urza's Rage used to be a bomb. It used to be awesome. And it's two in a red deal three at instant speed. It can't be countered. And you can pay an additional eight in a red as kicker. And then it deals 10 instead. And it can't even be prevented. But as good as this card was an invasion block literally 20 years ago, it's... It's just not that good anymore. You know, magic's moved way past that. So uh, I'm going to have to say Urza's Rage is probably even weaker than like Defiant Strike, the plus and plus so and draw a card trick, because at least that, you know, maybe some feather decks and stuff like that, you know, end up using that kind of card. But, uh, you know, now, now that we're on the Mystical Archive, let's let's just start there. Let's take a look at the, at the, the, the archive that we know so far. Um, of note, there are seven cards banned that in historic from the mystical archive. So these cards are abundant harvest. That's the one green, green, uh, untap all your lands. I think I, I don't, I don't even, I, I, that's early harvest. I guess abundant harvest is probably similar, but, um, that one's banned. Uh, you also have brains or counterspell. Sorry. Brainstorm's not banned. We'll talk about that. Counterspell, dark ritual, lightning bolt, swords to pleasures, channel and demonic tutor, which, all pretty much makes sense. I don't even, like I said, I don't even really know exactly what Abundant Harvard does, but uh, it it doesn't really choose. Matter. It's a one mana sorcery. Choose land or non land. Reveal cards in the top of your library until you reveal a card of the chosen kind. Put that card into your hand and the rest in the bottom of your library in a random order. Oh, I don't even know. Yeah, I've never even seen this card before. I thought this was early harvest. I was mistaken, but. In any case, uh, yes, I'm sure this would probably be really annoying with like some kind of we- like weird Tibbles trickery deck, you know, or, or whatever. Like that, that, right? Four of these and four Tibbles trickers is some kind of combo, I assume. Uh, I guess you have to play other things to put into play too. I don't know. <laughs> but Abundant Harvest is banned. I guess Abundant Harvest is banned. Um, All right, fair enough. In any case, Counterspell, Dark Ritual, Lightning Bolt, Swords, Channel, Demonic Tutor. No real argument there, right? Like, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect any of those to really just make it into historic. Maybe, maybe lightning bolt. You know, if you really wanted it to be a bolt format, that and that's fine. But uh, that doesn't open the door for a lot of powerful cards to enter historic here. Uh, you know, we've got uh, Inquisition of Kozilek joining Thoughtseize and really adding a lot of power to the kind of black discard decks uh, or any any deck playing black that wants early disruption. Mind's Desire, <laughs> the four blue blue storm, you know, exile the top card of your deck and play it for free. This is, this strikes me as a kind of low EV bet. This is the the kind of thing we think about. I mean, um, when you're when you're deciding what cards to put in a set or make, you know, and um, I know you will know this because you work as a game designer. You look at you look at like okay, what what happens when it goes right? What happens when it goes wrong? Like, what is this card likely to do? You know, what, what, every every card you put in a set is a bet, right? You can look at it as, hey, I'm I'm betting this card will make the the game I'm making better. I'm you know that it will do something good for the format or for the set or for some segment of players. Mind's Desire is like one of those cards that you know if you want to go back to polarized matchups, either misses and has very little impact, or is extremely broken and and has a large detrimental impact. It's not the kind of card that usually lands in the middle, and. I don't know that Mind's Desire is going to be too problematic for Historic. I'm definitely not even saying that. In fact, it might not be good at all. But if it is good, it's like not a great card to be good. So I, I'm, I'm a little surprised that Mind's Desire is making it into Historic. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how that one goes. I think the one that I'm just like the most like over is probably just Time Warp. It's fine. Like Time Warp's a card which just shows up occasionally in Modern and in the Taking Turns deck. And I don't know. I'm pretty burnt out from the Nexus of Fate experience. There's a lot of cool Time Walks from Magic's history that have some additional properties. And like there's a lot of them that they could have added, you know, whether it's like part the Water Veil that kind of like have some cool extra bonuses to them but to just put like the cheapest one and the one that's most likely to just make it so i have to play against more taking turns deck in a tournament i can't say i'm like the most thrilled about it but whatever you know i'm sure it'll i'm sure i know if you have not gotten your fill of taking extra turns time works pretty good and you know there's a lot of powerful cards that you can combine it with if you're just into drawing a lot of cards and taking all the turns and copying time warps uh you know go for it <laughs> yeah i mean we've got uh Sign and Blood. I don't even know if that was in Historic to begin with, to be honest. Um, and yeah, I mean, for the most part, these cards look really cool. I, I like the the particular art style on these. Like, you know, I, I have some of the some of the like alt art things in this vein have been kind of misses for me. Like the invocations were unreadable, and that took a lot away because like that's just well, yeah, they're the worst. That's just but these, these know, ones actually difference. look cool. Yeah, these look cool. Like I could see wanting to kind of pick up some of these to to play and. uh yeah. yeah, I mean, to me, these look great. Like, it's, it's, they get to use, you know, they get to do so much more with the frame, and it's really new, fresh, original. And it's like, you can tell what it's a, it's a new thing. It's from today, and it's, you have a connection to it. And it's nice that it, it, it has all of those things going for it. It isn't just something like trying to like staple together pieces of the past or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, Mystical Archive, I, I honestly am, am, am generally happy with this kind of thing being in sets because it's a kind of cool way that I think generally is adds value to the people who care about it. Well, and, and even the people who don't care about this directly, this adds value to your packs, right? When you open a mystical right, card exactly. and, you can, and you can sell it to someone who wants it. But it doesn't really if a magic If much. a magic booster box like retails for 100-ish in the range and the value of the mystical archive cards is taking up 10 15 percent of that it just means that well the rest of the st- all the standard cards the standard staples just have to cost less because otherwise they could just open more boxes to uh to bring the price down right so i i i'm generally happy with them though i i do think it's odd that brainstorm will be in historic i i'm not i'm not <laughs> I, I mean look at the end of the day i do like casting brainstorm i've had a lot of good times with that card so i'm not gonna like complain about getting to cast it more I, you did bring up when we were when we were you know doing our extensive you know show notes process that uh, bra- brainstorm is like not the most fun card to watch your opponent resolve because usually ends up with a lot of them doing nothing. <laughs> but we'll see. It's, uh, that one also doesn't strike me as like overpowered and historic. Like it might be. I mean, you don't you don't know, but it does seem that that brainstorm has the capability of being very good. What, but without fetch lands except like fabled passage, it's not necessarily very good. No, yeah, Brainstorm is not a card that frequently... It's hard when Brainstorm is dominating a format to sort of tell that it's Brainstorm, that that's the thing that's going on even. Brainstorm doesn't really necessarily put you up on cards. The best thing that Brainstorm does is it basically gives you a very smooth draw, and we've already had some of that mitigated by the London Mulligan, and and it gives you more frequent access to the cards that you want. So some of the negatives of Brainstorm as a card in formats is that it makes game it can make games play out kind of similarly. That said, as Magic is a game, you know, as 
everybody wants the decks to feel different and varied. It is nice that Brainstorm can give players some increased access to the right tools that they need at the right time to interact with their opponents. And, you know, in best of one play, it allows you to potentially play more situational cards and potentially brainstorm them away. Um, it's not a particularly hard puzzle to solve for playing with Brainstorm. You know, you play with Shuffle Effects and Brainstorm, and then when you put the cards on top of your deck, you shuffle them away. Yeah, that that is basically it. Uh, let's get to, to actual Strixhaven proper because there there are some cool cards. the The attack of the text continues. Uh, these these double fist cards are a bit much. So I, I've seen a couple of people, uh, you know, post the the meme. You know, when they're looking at the double fist cards, like you know, you know the the text of like, you know, uh, yeah, I'm not gonna lie, I don't have time to read all that. I'm sorry, congratulations, or I'm sorry that happened to you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, these, they're pretty. The, the Dean cycle in particular, those these are new legendary creatures. So Strixhaven is built around this idea that Strixhaven is like a school for mages, and within them there are different colleges. So much like there are at actual universities, and then each of those sort of colleges or schools, I guess, has their own deans, and they're all based around these two color pairs. And so, for instance, you know. Like the Golgari one, they all have their special name. I like the Quant- I think Quandrix is the Simic one. Witherbloom's the Golgari one. Um, and so, for instance, like Witherbloom's two deans. It's like it's a double face card where the front side is a one mana vampire with menace and lifelink, and it says if a non, it's called Valentine Dean of the Veln. Vein. If a non token creature an opponent controls would die, exile it instead. Whenever when you do, you may pay two. If you do create a one one black and green pest creature token with when this creature dies, you gain one life. So, all right, a lot going on. The other side of the card is Kian, Dean of Substance. Two and a green for a 2-2. Two, two. No, 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 that, that, that's the card next to it. The, the other side of the card is uh, Lisette, Dean of the Root. It's oh, a my bad. two green green for a 4-4 four, four human druid. And it says whenever you gain life, you may pay one. If you do, put a plus one plus one counter on each creature you control. And those creatures gain trample until end of turn. Um one of the things you notice in the Dean cycle, because you were looking at the next one in the cycle, because they're just laid out next to each other. Oh, I see. Uh, the two the two Deans, even though you only get to play one, right? You have to choose which one you want to play when you cast it. The two Deans tend to work together. Like, these two cards are a combo where, you know, Valentine gains you life and makes tokens, and Lisette pays you off for gaining life and having tokens. It's not actually the most subtle. Uh, but what's crazy is either of these cards has enough text to be just like a complicated card on its own <laughs> and these cards are both of them <laughs> yeah um i mean it's it's a lot to take in um you know this was a it's i'm glad it makes me happy we're not playing paper magic while these are around to some degree it, it would be hard to recall like you know just looking at a reminder card for these or one of these in your hand sleeved up what the backside did and what it was capable of and so, you well, know, fortunately, me, when just in digital, you could just mods them over, I guess, on Arena and see what they do. Counterpoint. Can I can I read you the blue-red Dean? It's, you know, you're, you're going to not have a hard time, uh, you know, figuring this one out. It's uh, Uvilda, Dean of Perfection. It's two in a blue for a 2-2, legendary creature, Jin Wizard. Tap. You may exile an instant or sorcery card from your hand and put three hone counters on it. 
It gains at the beginning of your upkeep, if this card is exiled, remove a hone counter from it. And when the last hone counter is removed from this card, if it's exiled, you may cast it. It costs four less to cast this way. The backside is Nasari, Dean of Expression. It's three red red for a 4-4 legendary Ifrit Shaman. At the beginning of your upkeep, exile the top card of each opponent's library. Until end of turn, you may cast spells uh, from those exiled cards, and you sp may spend mana as any, of any color to cast them. Whenever you cast a spell from exile, put a plus one plus one counter on Nasari, Dean of Expression. You're telling me you can't just remember that? Well, at some point it's going to become hard for me to remember which are the exiled cards from the one Dean, which are the exiled cards from the other Dean, which are the exiled cards I can cast from Fortel, and which is the exiled... It, it's not going to be hard. ...adventure card I can the, cast. The one Dean has, ho <laughs> has hone counters on it. Oh, yeah, hone counters. The other one doesn't, so... No. Oh. Look, <laughs> We're, we're having a little fun. We're here. having we'll a little see. fun here. I mean, yeah, I I do think these cards are cool. I did like the double face cards when it was like Zendikar Rising. It's a land or it's a spell. I thought that was pretty cool because it's like, hey, when you want to land, this is a land. When you want a spell, this is a spell. And that, that's pretty sweet. These cards are just a lot. And yeah, it, they are multicolored. So like you, you 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 sometimes some decks will play where they can only play half. Like like Valentine, the one black for a one one menace lifelink. Like that card is like kind of plausible even if you couldn't cast the green side because there's some matchups where that card could be pretty strong, right? I mean, it's, it's not a weak card. Overall, I think that these cards really put to the test like how much text can you put on a card because they're text-filled cards with two sides, both of which are more complicated than the average rare or mythic for sure. Yeah, I mean, it. they... The, the, there is a story that's going on with them. I mean, I think one of the big things for, you know, people when they want to start playing with them and construct it is going to be try to decipher down the text box into like an imagine, start imagining in your head when you think each half is going to be good and what it does for you. So for like Evaldo, this is the Dean that, you know, you can exile spells into their sorceries. They get home counters. And then when you cast them later, they're four or less to cast. So it's like, okay, there's a lot going on. But the big thing with that one is, okay, this side is like good when I have a lot of cards and I don't have much mana. And so this will allow me to sort of put some spells on layaway and get them cheaper later. Okay, got it. And then the other side is you start getting to, it ex starts exiling cards from your opponent's library that lets you cast. And so the big thing there is it's like, well, if you're short on action in hand, then you want maybe you want that side more. And so... Hopefully what will happen and, you know, the best case that this plays out is those sort of innate ideas of, or sort of the, the underlying sort of need that the card is fulfilling starts getting tied into you with the card in your hand. And then that will make it a lot easier for you when you're evaluating which Dean you want at any given time. So uh, th there are a lot of cool cards. And, and here's, here's let me give you an example of a double-faced card you pointed out, which I, I, I think is, is very good. Uh, like th it is a cool card. It's a Torrent Sculptor. So the front side is two blue blue for a 2-2 two, two Merfolk Wizard with Ward 2. Ward is a new keyword that says, when this becomes the target of a spell or ability an opponent controls, counter it unless that player pays two. Uh, we'll get to Ward after this card, actually. Uh, but so it's got Ward 2, which has like the Frost Titan text, where whenever they try to do something to this card, they have to pay an additional two. So, you know, that's already like a good amount of protection. And it says, whenever Torrent Sculptor enters the battlefield... Exile or instant sorcery card from your graveyard. Put a number of plus one plus one counters on Torrent Sculptor equal to half that card's mana value. That's what the, the cost uh, rounded up. So you exile a four mana sorcery or instant. You get you get a, a plus two plus one counters. You end up with a, a four mana four four with some protection. 
The other side is Flamethrower Sonata, which is a one in a red for a sorcery. It says discard a card, then draw a card. When you discard an instant or sorcery this way, Flamethrower Sonata deals damage equal to that card's mana value to target creature or planeswalker you don't control. And the reason that I think this card appealed to both of us, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the two halves are very different and they both work well together. And when you have like, when you you can imagine drawing three of these and casting two as the Sonatas to, to put some big expensive sorceries or instants near your graveyard and one as a torrent sculpture to kind of, uh, you know, siphon those in. And I like the cards that are conceptually very different. So I actually do like this more than the Deans, even though the Deans are cool. Like the each of the cards, like some of those cards, the Dean cards are quite cool. They both are like, I don't know, legendary creatures that do a bunch of stuff, whereas this is a burn spell or a, a creature. And I kind of like the things being more far apart for the reason you mentioned, which is you know when you want one versus the other. Yeah, I mean, it, in general, it's easier to convert a, a, a creature. The big advantage of creatures and magic is that you get to keep using them. You get their abilities for a longer. They can be used in a greater variety of ways once they're on the board. The biggest downside to creatures generally is that they're more vulnerable to opponent's interaction, that you have to more or less wait a turn before you get to use most of their abilities and get to attack with them. And so the backside of a creature being a spell is just awesome because you get all of the immediacy of the impact. You get how hard it is typically for the opponent to to immediately negate the effect of the spell. And so for a card like this, where it's like, you either get a, a good removal spell or you're getting a durable or you're getting a, a threat. That's that's great because you it's much more likely that the game situation really wants one or the other from you. And so the fact that you this card can consistently meet the need is uh, just a, a great thing to have access to. What other cards from uh, Strixhaven stood out for you? Uh, so, yeah. So if we want to talk about the Planeswalkers for a moment, the ones that they've revealed. So... The one that I really like the most is Kazmina Enigma Sage. And this is one green and a blue for a two loyalty planeswalker. And first of all, historically, one green and a blue planeswalkers have included uh, the most busted planeswalker of all time. So that's a great place to start. Um, each other planeswalker you control has the loyalty abilities of Kazmina Enigma Sage. I was just making a joke about Oko, just in case you missed it. <laughs> but probably didn't if you were playing Magic. But um, plus two ability is Scry 1. The minus X ability is create a 0, 0, green, and blue fractal creature token. Put X plus 1, plus 1 counters on it. And then the minus 8 is search your library for an instant or sorcery card that shares a color with this planeswalker. Exile that card, then shuffle. You may cast that card without paying its mana cost. Let's get it clear. This planeswalker is bad by itself. It's bad. It's one of the worst ones I've ever seen. Like, it just... It's not that terrible because it's a three-mana one that has a plus two, so it does gain a decent amount of loyalty quickly, but Scry 1 is, like, not a particularly powerful plus one. The awesome thing about this card is that this is, like, basically an enchantment. You know how, like, Glorious Anthem is, like, an enchantment that pumps up all of your creatures? Kazmina is like that, but for your Planeswalkers. So, the the ability to give this plus two scry one ability to an, another planeswalker is awesome. If you ever have a planeswalker which has a ultimate that it's, you really wants to achieve, but it doesn't have anything more than a plus one, Kazmina now says it's going to get to it a lot faster if it's in play because it can plus two to scry one to get there. And for some planeswalkers, they don't—they literally don't even have plus abilities. They only have minuses. 
um, you know, so, some of uh, what was it? Sarkin Vol was was our there. There have been a couple. Uh, I think the Mad, I think was the was Sarkin the Mad. Yeah, yeah, that have just not um, and Kiora from War of the Spark. They, that just comes into play. You can use them so many times. A lot of the War of the Spark ones fall into this category, actually, like Narset Parter Veils, where you're only intended to be able to use it a couple of times. But giving it a plus two means now you can unlock and use these Planeswalkers more frequently. And then this minus X ability where you can just minus X any Planeswalker to get a XX for the amount of loyalty just means all of these Planeswalkers that had just bad abilities, medium abilities, but you could, um, but you couldn't really do much with their loyalty. Well, now you just have this way to just make a huge creature and just have a creature that could just protect your Planeswalker with it. Um, the one that really stands out to me that really combines nicely with this one, and I'll be curious to see if we can do anything cool with this one in the story, is the Kiora from War of the Spark, the Behemoth Beckoner. And so this Kiora was just two and a Simic hybrid for a seven loyalty Planeswalker, and it has minus one on tap target permanent, but also whenever a creature with power four greater enters the battlefield under your control, draw a card. With Kazmina, we can just literally play Cure and immediately minus four it and get a four four and draw a card and still have a three loyalty Cure behind, and that that's just a pretty dope little combo. So I don't think this Kazmina is like actually like a very particularly strong planeswalker, but it is the kind of card which if th- it would not be hard for them to make another planeswalker in the future, which combines with this one in a really powerful way that could actually get Kazmina over the edge in standard. Yeah, I I, I think. It- you know, kind of in the same vein, the minus X means you can just cash out all your planeswalkers in a kind of Sarkin-like feeling, you know, the one that turns all your planeswalkers into dragons. This does let you play Kazmina, make, make you know, make a 3-3 three, three or 4-4 four, four with one of your other planeswalkers, then plus Kazmina and the next turn make a 3-3 three, three or 4-4. Four, four. I don't know. It puts a bunch of stats on the board. Three mana, three mana planeswalkers are pretty cheap too. Yeah, you, I mean... You get to get them out older- pretty quickly. Yeah, in older formats, this can just come down on the second turn. And we didn't talk much about the minus eight ability, but, you know, that's another one where if you have a Planeswalker, like, you know, I keep going back to Cure. Cure is just the perfect pairing with this one where you could just immediately plus it, get up to nine loyalty, and then minus eight, where you could just literally cast any instant or sorcery card that shares a color. In standard and even in historic, this just likely means you can get something like an emergent ultim- an emergent ultimatum. Like, a cur- like, in historic, it's literally a curve that you could just do is you know, turn is you could just have a Kazmina the next turn you play a Cure, take it up, and then the turn after. And this is, could just literally be on turn four with a Lanner Elf. You're just casting an ultimatum, and you still have two Planeswalkers left in play. Yeah, that, that, it, it seems pretty sweet. Uh, Professor Onyx is also making some waves. This is uh, four black black for uh, five loyalty Liliana. So I guess she's Liliana in disguise or something. And... She has Magecraft, which is actually a really cool keyworded thing. I like that Magecraft got keyworded. It says, whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery spell, do X. In this case, the X is each opponent loses two life and you gain two life. So all your spells come with tendrils stapled on top. The The copy part is actually what's made Chain of Smog now a $10 card, apparently. Chain of Smog, if you if you haven't seen it, is uh, it's, a, it's a card from uh, Onslaught. And uh, it's one in a black, so uh, target player discards two cards. That player may copy the spell and may choose a new target for the copy. So the way this played out, 
you know, no one ever really knew about this card because no one ever played it, was you cast it, make them discard two. If they want, they can point it back at you. You could point it back at them, and all of a sudden no one has any cards in hand. But the thing is with uh, Professor Onyx here, you can just choose to copy it as many times as you want. It doesn't require any cost. And then every time you copy it, you, you drain them for two. So it's a two-card kill for, I, I assume, mostly Commander. But, you know, whatever it is, people are excited by it. Uh, the abilities on this Planeswalker are plus one. You lose a life. Look at the top three cards of your library. Put one in your hand and the rest into your graveyard. So significantly more powerful than draw a card. Uh, you you know, getting you get the, your choice of three and you get to put two into the graveyard, which is great. Uh, the minus three is each opponent sacrifices a creature with the greatest power among creatures that player controls. Another strong ability where, as we've seen a couple cards that like make them sack their most expensive thing or their, their thing with the most power, this usually kills the thing you do want to kill. Like usually this hits, you know, the, the, the thing you're interested in hitting. And then uh, minus eight, each opponent may discard a card. If they don't, they lose three life. Repeat this process six more times. So basically they lose 21 life and then they can discard a card to prevent three of that, you know, as many times as they want. So overall, I mean, at six mana, I think Professor Onyx is going to have an an uphill battle to see play. Like Liliana Dreadhorde General was a really powerful card and overall really didn't make much of a splash in Constructed, but... I like some of the things that are going on here with Professor Onyx. Having six loyalty and getting an immediate card draw, plus giving you a lot of life. If you're untap and cast one or two spells, that's already like you, you know, draining them for four is, I think, pretty close to like drawing a card sometimes more. Yeah, definitely a high bar just because, like you mentioned, we, 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 you typically can just get a Planeswalker, which will more or less remove a permanent and draw a card for five mana. So this is kind of costing you one more. And it's not like, and the things that it does is it's like it's got a slightly more selective form of card draw and it kills and it kills creatures with a, with some protective abilities a little bit more regularly. Those kinds of upgrades are nice and they're the kinds of things that you sort of get when you tune your deck is what you're looking for for a particular metagame. Those typically aren't the kinds of upsides that are worth an additional full mana worth of cost. So, but we'll see. I mean, Professor Onyx's uh, abil- Magecraft ability, of course, is just gives you so much potential to just kill your opponent the next turn if you get to start the turn with it. So that's probably the most uh, hard to evaluate part of the card. Uh, another card I like is a Dragon's Guard Elite. One in a green for a 2-2 human druid at rare. And it has Magecraft, so whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery, you put a plus one, plus one counter on it, and you can pay four green, green to double the number of plus one, plus one counters on it. I just like uh, Kirin Dryad throwbacks, and I don't think this card is... Uh, is 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 too far from being something that a spell heavy deck might want a two mana two two that grows fairly rapidly and then sometimes you just have the ability to pay six to kill your opponent if it's ever unblocked it is pretty appealing so uh, dragon's guard elite looks like a potential little beater uh, you know in the vein of like a cheap prowess creature that sort of thing yeah and just taking a step back i think my my assumption is is that we will see magecraft moving more in the future i don't i don't know if it'll become an evergreen mechanic necessarily but in terms, but I think we'll see this more often than prowess. I mean, one of the things I really like about Magecraft is, is just that it is, it works with less stuff than prowess, but it feels a lot cooler as a as a mechanic. Like prowess triggering off of artifacts was just like I always mean, a little weird. Mishra's Bobble was the first card I thought of. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like yeah, yeah sure, it, it pumps your swift spears and your soul scar mages, but like it doesn't. It's not very cool. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, right. Like these are all meant to be like these are all druids, wizards, and shamans, and it's just like and warlocks, and it's like yeah, those things getting powered up by instant sorceries makes so much more sense than 
you know, your navigator's compass or whatever powering them well, up. I, I really like also that there's a cycle of two color uncommons, one for each guild, you know, or, or school that have magecraft and they just put it in all five colors, which is great because yeah. the, yes, we, we get it. Blue and red light casting spells. A lot of blue and red decks cast a lot of spells and there's a lot of prowess type cards in blue and red, but like expanding it to all five colors is awesome. It's kind of the thing that I really liked and that they've been doing more of too. You know, another positive direction design has been taking is uh, putting card draw in more colors. Cause I think that card draw and spell casting are just not things you should too heavily put in one color over others. Like sure. Blue and red are going to have more of a legacy of this. And you're going to see a decent amount of this even going forward. Like blue, red spells, right. Is going to be an archetype in some draft formats, but Every sp- every color and color and combination of colors casts spells and draws cards. So expanding that range of that, I think, is a very positive thing for Magic. Yeah, I basically I, I basically agree. I mean, uh, in my from when I've worked on uh, games myself, I am a, I'm a pretty big proponent that like card type is not essentially a thing that should be a property of individual sort of factions or colors within your game. It's just card types is just a way that cards work and there's still even within each card type there's still so much room for any particular tribe or color or whatever it is to express themselves and you know when you look at a card you know that might be in a non-typical sort of color pairing for something like magecraft you might think of like a golgari card and it's like whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery spell each opponent loses one life and you gain one life well that doesn't really feel like a is it ability, but it's nice that we now get this thing where it's like, yeah, sure. In this black green deck, if I'm casting instants and spells, I'm doing something that feels very um, sort of essential to what the black green experience of draining your opponent out and gaining, you know, gaining some life and hurting your opponent directly. Um, the last thing I wanted to cover, of course, if you have any other cards after, we can definitely take a look. Is the cycle of lands, the snarls? These are uh, one land for each of each of the schools. So blue, green, black, green, black, white, uh, white, red, and blue, red, all the enemy colors. And what they do is they're rare lands and they, and they enter the battlefield tapped unless you reveal one of uh, the lands of those types. So the blue, green one, you have to reveal Forester Island. So the first thing that everyone I think is going to go to, and I've already seen people talk about it, is like, well, Triumphs count as all the types. But then you want to play to try them on turn one. So wait, how does that work? And the answer, I think, in general, is these are going to be pretty good for two-color aggro decks, you know, that that are playing these colors. I think that uh, the slower decks are are not going to lean on these quite as much because you've already got triumphs and pathways, and those provide you a pretty good bounty of mana fixing. So having having the snarls kind of well snarling you up to you know kind of making it a little difficult for you to to, to sequence your lands is probably less likely to happen than a deck that really wants its lands to come into play untapped and is playing two colors so it will have a lot more basics than some of these three color decks. Yeah, I mean, I think we're burying the lead a little bit. Like we, this is completing the cycle from Shadows of Innistrad of the Port Town Fortified Village cycle. So we've gotten the allied colored versions of these before. Is that, um, is that bearing the lead? I don't think most people think about those lands very much. <laughs> well, I just think it's worth noting. I mean, we're not talking, we're not necessarily theory crafting. You and I played in a lot of tournaments with the cycle before. Like, it, we, it, it is true that in one, at one Pro Tour, we did break it by putting a Fortified Village in our deck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, to be blunt, these lands played, I did not think that it played well last time they were in standard. The but the best thing that they have going for them now is that last time they were in standard, the mana was like really weak and that the only options were these. 
and the cinder glade cycle those were the uh the lands which come into play tapped unless you had two basics and they had two different land types on them um for all the reasons that you mentioned with triumphs it was super awkward that's like you you would have them paired up with like a etb tap cycle or another etb tap cycle and then you really want to you oftentimes are most comfortable doing that on turn one, but neither land would let you, if you just drew like one of each of them, you could never have it that your second land would come into play untapped. So you could just cast your two drop. The saving grace is that in standard right now, we have a bunch of additional options. We have the pathways, we have fabled passage. And so I'm hopeful that this will allow you to more often play these snarls and decks where they are actually fitting well into your mana base and not causing you all the kinds of awkwardness. I mean, if you look up, if you look up my name in like Brix's control, and you can see the Jason Prodigy decks I had, I can tell you that the mana on them was just awful, and it was really unpleasant to play with the mana from those decks. It was a rocky roller coaster the whole time. Um, but hopefully, uh, we'll get something uh, a little bit better in uh, this time around, just because there are so many options. So even if these lands turn out not to be the best, you don't have to necessarily play four copies of them. So you're less frequently presented with that scenario of where you just can't make them smoothly come out and they'll actually work well for you in the spots where, you know, you do have a decent amount of basics and land types to help them come into play on top. All right. So Strixhaven has, it's got a lot of action. I mean, I, I, I personally tend to like the guild format for sets I I have I found I like those sets a fair amount, so I, I kind of baseline liked it. I like that Magecraft has been keyworded. Uh, we didn't really talk about lessons, but I think that's more of a more of a limited thing, anyways. My guess. Uh, so you know, we'll, we'll we'll see as we see more cards, and uh, well, we'll we'll see where kind of these things land. But for seeing our first batch of cards, our first real real drop of cards. Uh, it seems like Strixhaven is going to have a, a lot going on one way or another, and we'll see how much of it ends up kind of filtering its way into Construct. It's kind of hard to get a handle on these things, you know, right out the gates. But between that and the Mystical Archives, there's certainly a lot to digest here. Yeah, people can't see when you nod, so. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, yes. You, Luis, you just buttoned up our thoughts on the set so well. That yeah, so, I so, have anything I, to add. So, so eloquently wrapped it up that in that case, I, I'll just roll right into our outro. You know, that'll do it for this week. You can find me on Twitter at LSV. <laughs> you can find BK at Abexed. And, uh, you know, I got to say, I got to give you a shout out before we leave BK. We did a couple cube streams and it was a blast. I, I really enjoyed having oh, yeah. you on the stream. So, uh, and from the feedback I've gotten, you know, besides like, you know, some vehement uh, hate mail, for the most part, people really did enjoy it. No, 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 no one said anything negative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you go to the Channel Fireball YouTube, I'm sure they've been posted so you can check them out. It was a good time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that'll do it for this week. We'll, we'll see you next week. All right. Uh, so this week, I didn't have anything major to talk about. Just want to give a quick shout out. Just make sure everybody knows about a website that Luis and I have been using, vaccinespotter.org. Um, <laughs> just get the word out on it. Uh, so right now, in a lot of states, you might be now eligible to get one of the vaccines for COVID. And VaccineSpotter.org will help you find out when there's appointments available in your area. So uh, Luis and I have both managed to get appointments and uh, I'm excited to to get to get mine now that I'm eligible. And, you know, it's it's great that we're finally sort of getting back to normal. And if you have insurance, your insurance pays for it. Otherwise, um, there is I believe it's free if you don't have insurance. So um, don't take my word at that. But basically, if you are in a financially, I believe 
financial constraints don't really apply to the situation. So hopefully everyone can get vaccinated and we get, can get the world back to normal safer uh, sooner <laughs> and safer, I guess. Yeah, I, I do want to note that like it, it's rubbed me a little the wrong way that and this is why I think it's actually it's good that you're spreading the word on this. This has rewarded people who are good at doing stuff like going to vaccine websites and refreshing and finding appointments. And, you know, we know a lot of people who have that skill set. In fact, most of the people listening to the show are probably pretty good at that, too. But we're not the people in charge of rolling out the vaccines. And I think individually this it's good for everyone. If everyone, the more people who get vaccines. So if you are eligible, I definitely think it's a good thing to be doing. You know, you're in the groups of the people who they want to vaccinate. So get yourself vaccinated. But I, I, I do wish that it was more accessible and didn't reward so much, even if it meant that we would maybe get them later. The people who are good at refreshing websites and searching for things on the internet, because that is gonna, you know, it's it's, it's gonna lead, it's gonna slant, uh, you know, to the more privileged folks in general who are who are good at that sort of thing. Yep, that's definitely true. Um, I mean, I think the yes. First of all, one the one thing I hope your takeaway from this is also in addition to like, hey, you might be able to help get yourself an appointment sooner, which is great. Is that um, you know you can let your loved ones know. Like, I was made aware of this website by a friend, and then I told my dad about it the other day, and now he has an appointment, and he's uh, you know he's quite a bit older, and it's great for him that he can get a vaccine. For me, it's just a nice thing to do. And you know, I at least one one thing I will say is that at least is that even if it is true that. Um, there is some amount of the people who are good at like refreshing pages and doing things like that. will get vaccines sooner. Just overall, the fact that we have the internet as a tool so that if an appointment shows up at one pharmacy somewhere, thousands of people around the state can get notified, can find out about it. And it just means it's very unlikely that sort of appointments go to waste is a great thing. And, you know, I mean, I think if you look in the, the numbers in terms of the fact that just literally millions of people are getting vaccinated each day is just kind of amazing. It's kind of mind boggling to think about in terms of how much how fast this is happening, because there's it usually I mean, I think what in the past they talked about a, a typical timeline for a project like this would have been like five years in terms of developing a vaccine and then rolling it out nationwide. But the world moves a lot faster, and it's certainly great because I know all of us are really hoping for, looking forward to getting back and getting together with friends and playing a little magic. Definitely.